Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. Today I'm excited to have Elizabeth Yen, who is a tech entrepreneur, startup investor, and co-founder and general partner of Hustle Fund. Previously, Elizabeth was a partner at 500 Startups, where she invested in seed stage companies and ran the Mountain View Accelerator. Uh, in real life, uh, Elizabeth co-founded and ran the ad tech company called Launchpad. Uh, Elizabeth has a bachelor's from Stanford and MBA from MIT Sloan. A big thank you to Adam from Buffalo Market for the introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you, Rohit. Appreciate it. And I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to understand how did you get into uh, uh, the crazy world of startups and what got you interested to get into uh, become a VC? So I've always known that I've wanted to be an entrepreneur. And actually, just a quick story here. Um, when I was in high school, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so that was just the beginning of the dot-com boom. And one day in 1995, I think, in the fall, my best friend from high school asked me if I wanted to help her cousin, Tony, with his startup. And I didn't have anything going on. You know, I wasn't doing anything. And um, so I said, Sure. So we went up to Tony's office and frankly speaking, I don't think we were any help at all, but that was the introduction to the world of startups for me. I knew from that day on that that was the dream. That's what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up. I wanted to be able to work with my friends on all kinds of projects and and it was very casual and you could eat all the pizza you wanted in the world. So fast forward, actually, Tony ended up becoming a mentor of mine for, for quite a long time. Um, that Tony actually found a lot of success. That Tony was um, Tony Shea, who, the late Tony Shea, who previously ran Zappos. But I think many people don't know that even prior to Zappos, he did have a big hit. He sold the company to Microsoft for, you know, over $200 million. And so he became a mentor to me. And, and you know, fast forward many years, you know, later when I was starting my business, that that I think you know was was really important to me in getting started. That you know connection to that childhood experience. No, I, I think that's a great story, Tony. Uh, Shay, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tony. Um, and it's just sorry that he's not there, but uh, uh, his book "Delivering Happiness" is one of my favorite books. Uh, and uh, I, I've actually worked for a uh, for a CEO called Ritesh Agarwal from Moyo Rooms, who was part of the Theory Fellow, and I think uh, Tony was also one of the project managers of Theory. Um, so awesome, you know. I, I think you went on to uh, found Launchpad. What was uh, what was the experience about? Yeah, so I started Launchpad, and actually with that same friend from high school, Tony's cousin Jennifer. So we started it together, and uh, in the end, Launchpad essentially became an advertising network of sorts. But you know, and I think that here's something where I would say it's really important to go into a startup understanding specifically the problem you want to solve, or at least the audience that you want to serve. I think that was something we didn't really have a clear understanding of in the beginning with Launchbit. I think we mostly just went into it because we wanted to work together, and then we were trying to search for a problem. And I think in retrospect, that probably wasn't the best way to do a startup, um, and so I think if I were to pick out one thing that I would do over again, that would certainly be it. But, you know, we ended up growing the business over several years, sold a lot of ads, um, and, uh, you know, in the end, sold our company to a larger ad tech company. And I think that, uh, it, you know, it was a lot, a lot of hard lessons in the beginning. I didn't know 
anything about lean startup or selling or whatever. And, um, but learned a lot by the end for sure. And, and, uh, after launch bit, uh, did you, did you start working for 500 startups or did you have other, you know, startups that you wanted to uh, launch? Yeah, I had wanted to start another company, but again, because of my experience with LaunchBit, I had come to realize that it's really important to be, you know, quite committed to a particular problem or audience. And so I didn't want to just start another company for the purpose of starting another company. I wanted to really be thoughtful about what was a problem that I could see myself working on for the next 30 years. And so as part of that, I started mentoring startups. I actually had never intended to get into investing at all, but I started mentoring startups and that was at 500 Startups, which is the accelerator that we went through with our company, LaunchBit. I had wanted to meet other entrepreneurs, understand what the world was looking like, because at that time, by 2014, the world had changed a lot. Like people were working on cool things in drones or VR or Bitcoin and all this other stuff. And I had been so heads down on my ads company that I didn't even know what any of that was about. So originally I started mentoring, but one thing led to the next and I ended up actually running the accelerator program for almost two years. And all the while I was still trying to figure out what's the next problem that I want to solve. I'd never saw, seen myself as a, as a VC, but then it dawned on me that actually the problem that I wanted to solve was uh, actually this problem of uh, getting startup funding. I noticed that actually all of my founders, not all, but many of them struggled with raising money as well. And that I was not the only one in going through that problem with my own startup. And so that's when uh, my business partner, Eric Bond, and I decided to start a VC fund. I think many of us, many people who see Hustle Fund from the outside thinks, oh, you know, Elizabeth always wanted to be a VC. But, but actually, Hustle Fund is trying to solve a very deliberate mission and um, you know, helping startups get funding is is part of that mission. Interesting, and you know, you talked about five hundred uh, starters. What, what are your thoughts on on accelerators? Do you think, uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, only early stage uh, startups should get into accelerators and uh, should, should get the get get that sort of mentoring? Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that accelerators can be incredibly helpful, but people need to be really deliberate about what is their goal for the accelerator. So, you know, with regard to 500 startups or any of the others like Y Combinator or Techstars, you know, I think certainly it's amazing if you can get into one of these. But the question is like, what is my goal for it? And how am I going to spend my time achieving that goal? So, for example, I think a very valid reason I actually have a portfolio company who recently raised, I guess you could call it a post-seed round. So they're pretty far along. They've raised a lot of money. And they recently were accepted into Y Combinator and decided to take that deal. And when we talked through what the goal was, you know, obviously for them, a fundraising goal actually was irrelevant because they could already raise a lot of money without Y Combinator. Um, and, and so they talked with me about, you know, kind of their sales goals and this and that. And actually, it was, you know, a great reason for them to join YC. The community and the network is pretty incredible. And so as such, you know, I would evaluate like if, you know, let's say you're an outsider and you're really struggling to raise money, going to one of these top accelerators could actually change your trajectory if your goal is, let's say, to raise half a million or a million dollars and you get into one of these accelerators that can help enable that. So I think it can be worth it. 
but it really depends on what the particular problem is you're trying to solve and, and you know, which accelerator, because not all accelerators are equal either. Right, right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you've been an operator and then, uh, I mean, you, you, you're looking at solving a different problem. Uh, what advice would you give to operators who want to be, who are looking for the next big thing or they're looking to switch and become a, you know, venture capitalist? How, do, how does an operator get to decide that, you know, he uh, or she can be a VC? This is a great question. And actually, I have so many friends who thought they wanted to be VCs, and then they joined some firm, and then less than a year later, they realized actually they really didn't want to. So I think it's actually really important to find some way to test whether that's something you actually want to do first. And the reason I say that is actually venture capital, a lot of people think is very similar to angel investing, but it's actually quite different. Um, especially when you're talking about joining somebody else's firm, there can often be politics. There's certainly a lot of paperwork and an administrative work. And so for somebody who's been an operator, that generally can not, is not very fun, right? Especially if you've been an entrepreneur where you didn't have to deal with politics because you were the boss and yeah. you didn't really have to deal with all these other things. And so maybe sometimes what you really want to do is actually become an angel investor, start your own rolling fund. Then you don't have any of those, those bad things about it, but you still get to invest. So I think if there's a way to sort of test it by maybe, I don't know, first talking with VC funds and seeing if you can even volunteer for two weeks, like a short period of time, just even see what does it mean to work at a VC firm? I think that'd be incredibly illuminating. Um, another friend of mine actually wanted to start her own VC firm. And, you know, when she saw what actually happens in a VC firm, she decided she absolutely did not want to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> And that's an interesting thought. So uh, would you suggest people who are starting their own startups uh, and maybe, you know, uh, they're three years into the journey, should they look at starting their own rolling funds or, you know, their own angel fund just to support the ecosystem? Uh, or would you would you think that, you know, startup entrepreneurs should focus and focus on, on their own problem only? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good question that I, lots of people have opinions on. Um, you know, I don't think that I'm in the business of policing what my founders do. So if they think that they have the bandwidth to be running a rolling fund or a little, you know, angelist syndicate, like so be it. And I would say that actually, at least for the syndicates and the rolling funds, you can do as much or as little work as you want. Like I have some friends who are entrepreneurs and they're quite busy and they do have one of those, but they're not very active. And then every once a year or something, they might see something amazing and, and activate it. And then other people are constantly raising for their rolling fund. And so th there's a whole spectrum. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. Entrepreneurs are certainly in the deal flow. So, you know, great. Right, and, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, talk more about uh, Hustle Fund. Um, I think I've, I've read one of your articles about raising $11.5 million. And it was very interesting because, um, you, know, uh, you know, I somehow found that raising a VC fund was a lot more difficult than, you know, raising funds for a product company because I think you did uh, more than 300 meetings. Uh, uh, so, you know, just for people who, who want to look at raising a VC fund, uh, you know, what is, what, what is some of your lessons and learnings? Uh, what advice would you give to, you know, upcoming VCs? Yeah, raising a VC fund uh, definitely is a lot harder, in my opinion, than raising money for a startup. And mostly it's because actually you need to raise more money and you have a limited number of slots 
of investors, and we can certainly talk about that. And you're also raising from the same kinds of people that you might raise from as a startup, so their checks are not that big. So we actually did more than 700 meetings to raise $11.5 million, wow. uh, which is a lot of meetings. And I mean, I think the the gist of it is we just had to pack in our meetings like crazy and generate as much FOMO as we could. And the way that we did that was we started with a very low minimum. So some of our initial checks were 10K, 25K, which is pretty small for a, a fund. And then we gradually raised that minimum. So we use that actually as a forcing function for people who were smaller angel investors. Uh, we wanted to encourage them to come in earlier and use that momentum then to put pressure on larger checks. And so actually the interesting thing is a good chunk of that money came in during the last eight weeks of our fundraise. Um, I think something like 6 million of it <laughs> of the 11 came in in the last few weeks. So, so that's, that's how we did our raise. And that, that's no different actually when you plot it out uh, as what, you know, a typical startup raise might look like as well. It's slow in the beginning and then all of it, this, all of a sudden at the end, everybody wants in. So, um, at the, but I think in terms of the FOMO that we generated, it was very similar to raising money for a startup. It's just, you're raising money for a fund. Right. And uh, you, you also mentioned that, you know, uh, you should be very early when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, 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 and, and with a lot of meetings from other people who from whom you can raise funds. Now, you know, how early should somebody be when they're looking to raise a fund? Uh, do you think a timeline of a year or six months uh, is enough to raise a you know small VC fund? Yeah. So I think there are some fundamental changes that have happened since when we raised our fund one and, and today, even though that was only three years ago, as funny as that sounds. But uh, one fundamental change is the options available. So we've kind of talked about rolling funds. Our fund one was a traditional fund. And as such, you know, we did not um, announce our fund. We didn't publicly uh, solicit our fund. You can do general solicitation pretty easily now, but even just a few years ago, that was not a thing. And so Therefore, we never marketed our fund, so we needed to do a lot of meetings in order to figure out who was actually interested and who wasn't, because we couldn't just like put on a blog post like, hey, anybody interested, you know, sign up here or email me. The second thing is rolling funds make it easier because actually you only have a certain number of investor slots in each fund. Uh, per SEC rules, a traditional VC fund can only have 99 investors for funds over $10 million dollars. And you can have, I think, I forgot whether it's up to 249 or 250 investors for funds under 10 million. And so you're not only trying to figure out who's interested in investing, but who can invest a big enough check such that you can hit your fund target. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. And so it's this weird game, but what AngelList does with their rolling fund opportunity is if you work with them, they actually do clever things to give you extra slots. So, you know, not to dig too much into the legal weeds, but having extra slots is incredibly valuable on both our funds one and funds two. We, we pretty much exhausted all of our slots. We had no shortage of demand. The issue is just how big are those check sizes? 
And when you're talking about raising like our fund two, which was over a $30 million fund, it means our average check size needed to be over $300,000, which, which is a lot. And for an individual, certainly it's a lot. And, and even for a family, it's a, it's a lot because, you know, obviously you're not the only thing they're investing in. So they need to be worth quite a lot to be writing that check size. Right. So, um, so the second fund, uh, was it a rolling fund on angels? Uh, no, because even our second fund actually was too early for the rolling funds. <laughs> That's how new some of this stuff is. Oh, okay, got it. And uh, you know, I wanted to understand what what is the investment thesis? Uh, are you you know uh, are you stage a stage and sector and geography agnostic? Yeah, so we focus on pre seed, which I define as uh, super early, no traction. Um, we do like to see that founders have done something. So generally, an early version of a product has been built, or if there isn't a product, the founders have done some sort of pre selling of the product. Um, we do not invest in things that are just an idea that somebody thought up yesterday. And then we, we do very much try to focus on software. So, you know, other things like biotech, medical devices, energy, um, I don't know, hardware, e-commerce, those things tend to be out of our radar. And then geography wise, um, it's a little tricky, but if you are U.S. Delaware C-Corp, that's generally fair game. Um, so we do have some companies that are outside of the U.S. that are U.S. Delaware Secor, and we are also investing in Canadian entities and Singaporean entities as well. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, right. So uh, you know, uh, I uh, I have a you know non-technical background. I've been into into revenue uh, generating side of the role. Uh, you know, what is what is some of the biggest piece of advice that you give to non-technical founders who would want to you know become uh, either, you know, uh, a founder company or, you know, be an operator. We've, we've backed a lot of non-technical founders. So I think whatever business people are starting, it should play to their strengths. So I, I think non-technical founders are great founders. I don't think most software businesses are, you know, rocket science anyway, right. but obviously non-technical founders probably shouldn't chase after rocket science ideas if they don't have a business, if they don't have a technical partner who is actually right. good at that. So the kinds of non-technical founders I see really hit out of the park are people who can sell pretty well in some form or fashion in the beginning, whether it's actual sales or even just, you know, lead gen and signups uh, through ads or building community or whatever it is. Uh, those tend to be founders we back. Interesting. And um, uh, what, what advice would you give to people who are trying to develop their you know, early network uh, in, in a geography uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and in a particular sector? Ooh, I mean, I think with the pandemic, a lot of things have changed right. just because I think a lot of people are used to now doing a lot of things online in a way that they didn't used to. So I actually believe that uh, the future of networking is almost entirely online. Um, I do think that people will come back in person and go to meetups and stuff like that. But I think you can actually build a strong network regardless of where you are on Twitter if you just start e engaging with, you know, particular groups of people that you like, just like respond to them, um, you know, ask them what they think about certain things. Like that's how you can actually just get to know people. And then you can move that relationship to a phone call eventually, and maybe even eventually meet them. But I feel like I've met a lot of people on Twitter whom I have never met in person and probably never will meet in person, but feel like I know them fairly well. I think Twitter and LinkedIn have been uh, two of the 
most important social media networks for me where I've, you know, uh, reached out to people. And, uh, uh, you know, how, how do you get to build a relationship or trust and vulnerability with founders, uh, you know, considering that, you know, it's a 10-year timeline that you need to be with a founder. And uh, I think 2020 had been an inflection point for, for some of the founders, but uh, some of the sectors haven't done well. But you know, how, do you, how do you get to build a nice relationship of trust with a founder? Yeah. So I think going back to the online point, we we invest in all of our companies uh, online. Even pre-pandemic, we were doing video conference calls and, and investing off of that. So so for us, like building trust has always been about being able to do that remotely. And I think we can do that pretty well with the technologies that are available. But I think where it comes from is primarily in the communications. Like we we really care a lot about how our founders are doing, not the, I mean, obviously we care about the companies, but like we really care about how the actual people in these companies are doing because ultimately these are the people who are driving the boats, right? And so there are going to be a lot of ups and downs and mostly downs in this whole process. I know that my business partners know that we've all been in startups and it's a terrible long journey. And I think the most important thing is like, who is driving this ship and are, how is their morale? And so that's important to us. Um, it, you know, we know that businesses that even businesses that tend to do well go through a lot of hard points. And so I'm less concerned about that. Like we have a portfolio model that enables us to bet on a lot of companies and we know that not all of them are going to make it and it doesn't phase me if company has bad news in fact i welcome it because i think the more moral support we can give somebody or even network to help them with their actual problem the better all right and uh, you, you know during these times of compressed fund, fundraising timelines uh, you know what would you advise founders what are the you know some of the metrics they should look at so that they're able to uh, look at you know uh, making the, the right fundraising at the right time? I think fundraising has always been a really opaque process. And during these times, even though for some founders, it's been a lot easier to raise money, it's certainly not easy for uh, most people. And even for those whom it's easier, it, it may not even be easy in the beginning. So I think the metrics are a little bit wonky at this point in time as we're doing this podcast, but in general, and this is a vast generalization for software startups, I think, you know, if you're going for, let's call it seed funding, you're probably looking at at least a few thousand, if not $10,000 per month in revenue. And then for pre-A funding, you're probably looking at about a million dollar uh, run rate. So, so call it a hundred K 80 to hundred K per month in revenue now, but that's not a hard and fast rule. There's certainly a lot of companies in, in this current time that I am seeing uh, get funding way earlier than I would have normally expected them and valuations much higher. And then the opposite is also true. You know, some companies are able to hit those milestones, but Maybe they're in an area investors don't like or think is too crowded or in a geography that a lot of investors don't serve. So th that can be still challenging, even if you can hit those. But uh, those are the rough ballparks I would give people. Correct. And again, what advice would you give to founders on how to think about cash burn and runway during these times? I, I understand that, you know, they're saving on uh, on the cost for for real estate and, you know, offices, but how are, you know, cash, <laughs> cash burn and runway? I, I think during any time I, I would err on the side of 
caution with regard to unit economics. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that, you know, there, there are essentially two types of costs. There's the cost of getting every sale out the door and, and you know, kind of the value of that transaction. And then there's just the overall aggregate overhead and, you know, stuff like that. Your unit costs have to be good no matter what. In other words, you know, I think a long time ago, uh, pets.com, you know, every bag of dog food they would sell on the internet, it, it lost money uh, because it was expensive to deliver this dog food and the cogs of the dog food and all that. And they were, they were charging less than those costs. Well, that will just never work even at scale, right? So that's the thing that I think always has to be positive and that you have to work on to make positive, especially if you have high cogs like delivery and cost of goods and all this that's baked into it. Um, I think all else, like, you know, then you're just talking about, all right, how long do I have to wait until I get paid back? That's, that's a totally separate question. And I think that in frothy times, it's okay to put, you know, your foot on the gas. If, if your unit economics are generally good, um, then, you know, let's go and get a lot of those customers and then worry about getting paid back on them later. But I think, you could, that's something you can always pull back on if all of a sudden cash, you know, was was in shortage. You can you can stop accelerating those sales uh, in those times. So that's I think my nebulous response to that. To have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Do you think companies should sacrifice, uh, you know, uh, growth for, for gross margins in the, in the, in the first year? Or you know they should focus on 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 growth, uh, especially when it comes to you know uh, for uh, food companies or uh, companies where unit uh, economics could be uh, could be a little tight. I think the most important thing before actually growing is uh, making sure that what you have is something that your customers really love. So what are indicators of this? Well, if you have a subscription product, whether it's a subscription e-commerce product or a subscription SaaS product, it doesn't matter. You see that in the retention. Yeah. Like, are people coming back or not? And, and if they're not, then you do not have a product that people love. And, and I think, you know, there are actually really common benchmarks now for what is great just on the internet for, and for all these categories. So that's what I would look at first. And I would not grow until you actually get something that people really, really love. Because otherwise you are just churning out people as you're bringing them in. And then I would do a lot of qualitative calls, like let's say it's a one-off purchase uh, and, and really try to understand just how much did they love this product? How much would they refer this product, et cetera. And that can be subjective and challenging, but that's what you really wanna figure out first before you even think about growth. And a number of my companies even spend like a good year or even two years just honing that because then that really actually primes you to be able to pour a lot of money into customer acquisition. Because shy of that, if you're pouring in a lot of money, you're, you're basically just burning it. Right, got it. And uh, you know, I wanted to understand, uh, you know, why, why do you think there's so much, a few women in, in venture capital? Uh, and, and do you think, uh, 
you know, going forward, especially in Southeast Asia and other countries, uh, you know, what should be done so that more more women could be there in the in the VC field? I think in venture capital, it's a uh, very much about network. You know, actually, for many years, uh, venture capital firms did not post job job listings. That was an internal process. People found good candidates through their networks, and well, it turns out that you know people tend to hang out with other people who who look like them or are like them in demographics. That's just how things are, and so I, I think that is kind of what's contributed to perhaps lack of diversity in venture capital historically. That's starting to change now as people are starting to push out job descriptions to the internet so that anyone can apply. Um, and people are actively searching just for lots of applicants these days. So I guess I'm hopeful that that is something that will change. It will take time because even if you hire a junior person, it will take a long time for that junior person to get promoted. Um, but I do see that that change is happening in the horizon uh, just all around, whether it's here in the U.S. or outside. Right. And uh, uh, do you think, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley uh uh, uh, even with the, with the you know the level of innovation and the and the you know uh, and the support it has given to the founders, uh, do you think it will remain dominant in the next uh, decade or so? Um, you know, considering that the lot of unicorns which are coming out of southeastern countries, especially like India and China, you know, uh, other countries, do you think it will remain dominant uh, in future? I, I think it's an exciting time because I do think you see the rise of all these other startup ecosystems uh, and certainly with these new unicorns coming out of um, some ecosystems where they hadn't really had a unicorn before, um, Shopify being one of them in Toronto um, and India and China certainly are minting unicorns left and right. I think that Silicon Valley will still have a special place in a lot of people's hearts because there is a strong network there. It's not to say that you need to be in Silicon Valley to build a unicorn business, but I do think there's still going to be a strong concentration of, of network and talent because there are just a lot of tech companies, big tech companies that have been built there. And so, you know, when you're talking about, let's say you're a startup and you're raising your series C, well, you can probably raise money from a number of places now, but then the question is like, how many people are you going to hire who know something about that growth stage? And maybe if you're one of the first high growth companies in your new startup ecosystem, there isn't a lot of knowledge. And so you may actually have to tap into that knowledge and even labor pool in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's certainly something that we see some of our companies in some emerging markets uh, facing right now where you know, the founders are amazing and you can get going but then once you have to hire 100 people, it gets really hard. Already people in Silicon Valley complain about trying to hire 100 top talent people. So that, I think, is the bottleneck for that stage. Right, correct. And, um, you know, Adam uh, from, from Buffalo Market had been a previous guest on the show. And, you know, he, he talked about uh, the, the ecosystem in Silicon Valley is, is far different from the ecosystem in, in Europe. And, uh, and you know, he, he was talking about uh, how you had been an earlier uh, customer for, for Buffer Market. Uh, you know, wanted to understand what, what made you uh, look into Buffalo Market and why did you make the investment there? Yeah. So Buffalo Market is one of our portfolio companies at Hustle Fund. And they we actually met them just uh, they applied cold on our website. So we actually do invest in a number of companies where they have uh, no connection to us whatsoever. 
And when he applied, I actually tried out the service myself. I ended up becoming a, a customer for a long time before they switched to the wholesale model. And, um, and then that's how we ended up uh, deciding to invest based on the actual offering and how he thought about the business and his hustle and drive as may have been apparent from your podcast with him. Just really love that scrappiness of just, Hey, let's just go and do. And Adam very much exemplifies, I think, you know, the kind of attitude and execution we're looking for in founders. Got it. And you know, what, what do you look for a, for a founder uh, when you invest into them, uh, you know, looking at, at the company's timeline and, you know, Sometimes you you I mean you're doing most of your investments remotely at least in the last year or so. Uh, what is what are some of the traits you're looking for a founder when you invest into them? Yeah, so I think I would say that first and foremost, actually, we look at the startup ideas before the founders. I think the startup ideas are really important. There are a lot of great founders out there, and we will probably not even back a fraction of them. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, basically two things have to come together. It has to be an idea that we have strong conviction around and also the founder has to be great. And so that's why we look at the idea first and specifically, what are we looking for? Well, I think as a small fund, there are some things that we're essentially precluded from doing. So I think we tend to shy away from areas that are really competitive or where it's hard to differentiate because, those kinds of ideas need lots of money. It's not to say that you won't be successful, but we just seem like we're going to be the wrong investor for that kind of business. I mean, keep in mind, we're only investing $25,000. So I think that, uh, you know, what, you know, what, like what needs to happen is, you know, we have to believe that the idea is differentiated and unique and that the founders are also awesome. Correct. And, um, uh, you know, uh, you along with Hustle Fund, you have also launched uh, Angel Squad, uh, which is an initiative aimed at making angel investing more accessible to to people. Um, can you can elaborate more on that? Is it is something very similar to Angel List, or is something separate from you know, Angel List uh, on your platform? Yeah, so I think you know when you look at um, kind of founders and, and angels, I think when Eric and I started Hustle Fund uh, as you know our VC fund years ago, one of the things that we believed and still believe is that great founders can look like anyone and come from anywhere. Um, but you know, I think that there isn't really the the same initiative. So so we set out to go and back all these these founders from all walks of life with our with our fund. But I think the flip side is, well, what do the investors look like? I, I think it, you know, you need to um, have an impact on both sides of the equation and both the, the founder side as well as on the investor side. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the issues that we have today and, and one of the reasons why a lot of founders get overlooked is actually you don't have a lot of diversity amongst investors. And I think one of the easiest ways to get that is by increasing the number of angel investors, because I think trying to generate all these VC funds is too hard. So what we're trying to do with Angel Squad is we partnered with uh, Brian Nichols to bring about um, you know a new program called Angel Squad and, and really actually teach, uh, network with, and also invest alongside uh, a group of angels, essentially a modern day angel club. And so that's what Angel Squad aims to do. Got it. And, and do people need to be accredited investor to be a part of Angel Squad? Uh, they do need to be an accredited investor, but these days uh, accredited investors have a more flexible definition. So certainly, you know, traditionally the accredited investor definition was around net worth 
and salary and things like that. But actually, more recently, the SEC uh, loosened some of the criteria. And, and one of those is if you pass the Series 65 exam, then you are also classified as a, an accredited investor. Quite interesting. And uh, uh, Elizabeth, I quickly want to do that top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? Oh, gosh. <laughs> this is a hard one. Um, I think I would go with the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. I think I got the title right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it was, a, you know, I think his journey through his startup, the ups and downs of the dot-com bust and how he still managed to build this blockbuster company after everything was falling apart is pretty amazing. So many business lessons in there about how to run and grow a company and how to do the right thing often in challenging situations. So really big props to them. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most uh, most mentioned book on, on the podcast. I think uh, it's a fantastic book. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, working on Hustle Fund, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? For Hustle Fund, I think that, you know, serendipitously, I had my blog already by the time we were raising Hustle Fund. I didn't realize actually in this day and age, just how much content and, you know, putting your thoughts out there actually matters. But I do think that that's actually the crux of just so many endeavors these days. So I think I probably would have done more of that. And I don't even believe that you necessarily need to have a large following for it to be effective, but many people who ended up becoming LPs in our fund investors in our fund are longtime readers of my blog. And so they understand to the T how I think about things. And that I think, you know, gives people comfort around backing something. And so I would highly encourage anybody who's thinking about starting, whether it's a company or a fund to start putting your thoughts out there and building in public, because I really actually think the benefits way outweigh the downside. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I wish I started doing this podcast when I was much younger, uh, something like what Harry Stebbings did in uh, minute PC. And uh, you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, so I'm a real email junkie. I do everything through email. So I, I use, a, I guess you could say, Tony Shea introduced me to this system that he calls Yesterbox, where I only read responses from the, or emails from the day before. So then you only have a finite number of emails that you need to process every day. And so in order to, to do this, I use a combination of tools. I use uh, Boomerang to only bring in the emails from yesterday. I use SaneBox, which is one of my favorite tools. It automatically filters out a lot of emails in a smart way, uh, like junk emails, newsletters, things like that. And, and I use Superhuman for email templates. So I think that combination actually has been incredibly powerful and helpful for me. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. I will put that in the show notes. Um, Elizabeth, what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Hustle Fund? Yeah, so people can follow me on Twitter, dunkhippo33, or subscribe to my blog, elizabethian.com. And, uh, you know, we put out a lot of content around how we think about things or how to even do customer acquisition or fundraising. And so if people are, you know, in starting their company journey, I, I think it could actually be a really useful resource. 
I will put that in my show notes. Uh, Rizal, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Likewise. Thank you, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.